Loving, loving Sai Ram, Dr. Pal Dal, the Sri Satya Sai Global Council, West Indies, lovingly welcomes you to the series Awake, Unite and Inspire. We are happy, privileged and honored to have you as our guest on this evening's program. Dr. Pal Dal, can you share with us how did you first come into contact with Sri Satya Sai Baba? Om Sairam, uh, thank you very much for inviting me to be uh, a, a part of your program. I am very happy, I consider this a privilege, and I thank you and I thank Swami for this opportunity. Now your question is, how did I come uh, to Satya Sai Baba? You know, everyone has a unique story, and this is a long story, but it is something that I'd like to share in brief with you. Uh, my background as a scientist, as a medical scientist, uh, I, I had gone to a conference in England. And on the way back, I had gone to uh, a uh, Sikh Gurudwara and acquired uh, the Guru Granth Sahib, which is the holy book of the Sikhs. And I was reading this in the, in the aircraft, and the man sitting to me, next to me was an Englishman. And he, um, was very, um, very restless because he was a, uh, later on I found out he was a filmmaker and he was going to Philippines. I was traveling from England to Australia via Pakistan. I was going to stop in Pakistan to see my relatives, my wife's relatives. My wife is from Pakistan. And this man was a bit rude, Englishman. And having lived in England for nearly 20 years, I was accustomed to some people being very brash. And when uh, I, I did not particularly like him, uh, I was focused on my reading the, the book, the, the, the book that I had acquired, the Guru Granth Sahib. And he kept looking at me. And then when the food came, when the drinks came, uh, I said, uh, I you know, I'll have a soft drink. And then when the food came, it was vegetarian food. Um, because I had moved on to a, a, a deep meditations on Mahayana Buddhism. My background as a Hindu, from a Hindu background, uh, has been very broad. Um, and I was very attracted to Mahayana Buddhism. So I used to do long meditations. I had moved on to a vegetarian diet. And when he saw that I did not accept alcohol and I did not have meat, he said to me, why was I a vegetarian? So rather than getting into a long discussion with him, I thought I'd shut him up. I said, it's my spiritual belief. Now, contrary to what my expectations were, he became more curious. So he wanted to know um, what spiritual belief. So I, I said to him, uh, this interferes with my meditation. The alcohol and the meat interferes with my meditation. And then he said, your long conversation, ultimately he said to me, I am going to go and make a film in the Philippines of these, what he called psycho, uh, uh, psychic doctors. Now, as a doctor, as a medical doctor, I, I thought that was very odd. I don't know what the psychic doctors are. And he started to explain to me the psychic doctors are these people who can put, uh, you know, patients on the table and with a finger, they can open their abdomen and they can take out the organs and, and wash them and put them back and they're healed. And I thought this man was mad. 
I said, look, uh, I'm, a, I'm a medical doctor, and this is not how it works. And he said, uh, no, 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 I have seen it. I'm going to make a film. Uh, I invite you to stop in Philippines on the way to uh, Australia. And I thought he was mad, you know, asking me to stop like that. You know, I'm not in a bus that I can get off anywhere. Anyway, he gave me a long story and ultimately said to me, I, I said to him, have you seen all these uh, psych uh, psychic doctors operate? He said, yes, I'm going to make a film. And when I uh, expressed disbelief, he said, um, you know, there is this particular master and he says his powers come from Sai Baba. And he stopped to look at the effect of that on me. And I had not heard of Sai Baba. This was in 1987. I had not heard of Sai Baba, although um, in the background there was one person in our hospital, another consultant neurosurgeon, who used to have vibhuti on his head. And he had come once into my room in my office and said, you know, he looked at a book uh, on uh, quantum physics and he said, um, you know, my master is a spiritual master in India. And I, I didn't believe anything that he said because I thought he was, he was from Sri Lanka. He was like of the Tamil Tigers. Anyway, so this man, uh, we had a long conversation. He told me about Baba. He told me how he can revive people from the dead. I said, I told you, uh, I am a doctor and I'll tell you I'm a surgeon and I'm a scientist. People don't rise from the dead. And he looked at me straight in the eye and said, Oh, so you decide what God can do and what God can't do. And I was shocked with that. And then he said, he's an avatar. And so I said to him, why should an avatar come now? You know, we are so complacent. I am happy with my job. I have got money. I've got power. I've got position. I'm comfortable. Then why should, you know, it never occurred to me why an avatar should come on earth now. And I said to him, do you know what an avatar means? And he said, yes, I do. And he told me about, about all the 10 Hindu avatar. And he was very well versed. He talked about Guru Nanak's teachings. He talked about Prophet Muhammad's teachings. He talked about my wife is a Muslim and, and he was very well versed in that. He talked about Buddha's teaching. And I was a little bit taken aback with his depth of knowledge. Anyway, Time came, I was going to get off in Pakistan, in Karachi, and he dug into his pocket and took out a packet of Vibhuti and gave it to me. Now, I'll tell you something. I thought this guy was mad. He had, you know, all this guru stuff in India and people rising from the dead and healing and all that. And I thought, okay, now I got him. He is on some kind of a drug and he wants me to have this packet of drugs. So I thought I'll throw it away. I looked at the packet. It said, you know, I could understand the Sanskrit. It said, Pavitram Baba Vibhuti. And I thought, that's not bad. On the other side, there was a Sarva Dharva symbol. I didn't think that was bad, but I was very suspicious. I put it in my pocket. I got off in Karachi. But when I got off in Karachi, there had been a bomb blast at the airport. So there was chaos, and I forgot to throw it away. Anyway, my brother-in-law had been waiting outside the airport for a long time. So he met me and, and he said, uh, the first thing I said to him, I met a madman in the, in the aircraft. He's telling me about a saint in India who can create um, all sorts of things and he can raise people from the dead. And he immediately looked at me and he said, I'd like to go and see him. 
And I thought, so there's something wrong with him. Anyway, I was there for two or three days, and he made me tell all the stories that I had heard. And I was repeating these stories to different members of the family. And then I came back after three days to Australia. <clears throat> and again, the first thing that happened when I, in the car, my wife had come to collect me, and I too started to tell her, and she immediately looked at me and she said, I'd like to go to India to see this man. And I thought, what's wrong with you guys? Yours, my wife is a scientist, she's a PhD. And I said, what's wrong with you? So incredulous. This is, you know, how can you believe something like that? And she said, well, I'd like to see. Anyway, we decided to, uh, it's a long story. We decided that we will go and, and investigate Baba. But as events happened, we couldn't go. There were two, two small children at the time. So um, I said, you know, you go. I have just been overseas and uh, I'll look after the kids. So she went and just the night before, she had had a dream. Because after returning, we met other this the same uh, doctor in the hospital who used to wear the babuti on the head, and he told us about Sai Baba. We had acquired some books. We were reading *The Man of Miracles* by Howard Moffat. Again, a credible person, you know, is a uh, sign is a uh, reporter, and also um, um, another book that we had read, um, *Man of Miracles*, and another book. And so we were planning to go and investigate, but then my wife went. And she went there for a fortnight. There were many other events that happened in between. When she came back, she was transformed. And that meant that uh, that had a lot of impact on me. Then the following year in February for, for uh, Mahashivratri, I went. And that was how we came to Swami. The, the thing was, my training as a scientist did not enable me to believe in the spiritual world, even though I was deeply knowledgeable about uh, Hindu religion, uh, Islam, Christianity. Uh, I had gone to a medical school in England in the 50s when there was a very strong, um, um, this trying to convert people um, into Christianity. Um, and I had learned about Upanishads and Bhagavad Gita and all the religions that I could argue very, very patient, very strongly. But I could not, um, it was up in the head. All the information about uh, scriptures were in the head, not in the heart. And I think what happened when we started to look at Swami was that that information became transforming, uh, transforming knowledge and we could relate to another dimension of possibilities that science did, did not allow us to and science has no accommodation for that so that's how it came to start dr palda that was very very intriguing and as you so rightly said everyone has their own unique contact and getting to know swami so it leads me to another question the conversation you were having with the gentleman, the film producer, basically you were stating that you did not believe in such things and that an, how can an avatar come at this time? So what is it 
that transpired? What is it that allowed you to move from disbelief to believing that Satya Sai Baba is the avatar or God in human form or divine incarnation? Share with us a little bit more of that journey from belief, from disbelief, and not interested into believing in him. Okay, I, th I think when I look back on it, I was very ill-informed about the state of the planet. I was ill-informed about the state of the family. I was ill-informed about the challenges that we have at the planet at present time. I was very involved with my work as a, as a scientist, as a surgeon, and as a you know, uh, businessman. We also had a business. Now, I felt, I think looking back on it, I was very focused on my own family and my own well-being and happiness through worldly acquisition of uh, material wealth. But when he, he said to me, um, Sai Baba is an avatar, and I asked the question, why should an avatar come? He said to me, don't you think the world needs an avatar at present time? Look at the family. Look at the problems we have with the, with the ecology. Look at the problems we have in the, in the politics. Look at the differences we have between the rich and the poor. Look at, look at what is happening at the political level of exploitation. And that made me really um, shocked. So I did think, you know, I was not informed. He had better knowledge of the state of the planet than I did. And so it opened a, a possibility for me to look at in terms of a more um, ordered world, a more peaceful world, a more harmonious world, a more equal uh, world of, with justice. So Dr. Palda, seeing that your interest was peaked now and you were being guided or led now to look and delve a little bit more, what did that further understanding and knowledge of Sai Baba's teachings take? Was it that you started to read more books, look at films, interact with devotees? How were you gaining more knowledge about the authenticity of the avatarhood of Swami? Okay, so this doctor who was in working in the same hospital as a consultant, I went to him and, and said to him, you know, we would like to find out more about Sai Baba. And he told us of a bookshop in, in our city center. He said, there are some books on Sai Baba, you can get them from there. So we went and got a couple of books and we read them. And that was unbelievable because, you know, these people were um, not just talking about dreams. They were talking about the reality of their experience with Satya Sai Baba. And that gave a, and, and started to go to the Sai Center. We had a very small Sai Center at the time, this is in 87, uh, only a few people. But relating with them, uh, I realized that relating at a heart level with people is different from relating from a position of, you know, um, self-satisfaction and personal life being, you know, okay. So that was the beginning. And then more and more, as we read, we opened up, I opened up more and more, my wife more than myself. But I think that um, she was the leader in this, to be quite honest. Uh, I followed, uh, initially reluctantly, but, you know, I was kind of being pulled 
into a situation where, you know, my scientific uh, mind was being challenged to the possibility of another dimension of reality that I did not know much about, even though I could do meditations and, and have better control over my mind. But the rational mind was very powerful. And, and I think that controlling the rational mind and managing the rational mind was a big challenge for me. So, Dr. Paldal, on your very first trip to Prashanti Nilayam, when you first laid eyes on Bhagwan Baba, could you describe what that feeling and subsequent experience was? Yes, I think the very first experience when I saw him, it was uh, in the afternoon darshan. I did not get a position in the front or anywhere like that. I saw him from a distance and I was moved by how he was interacting with people. But the following morning, I was, I, as it was, I sat in the first line. And in those days, you know, when you said you were at, at the back, there were only six or seven lines of people. But I was right at the very front, right? When Swami appeared to come from his room out for darshan, I saw him far away. And then as he was coming to me, um, I, I don't know what happened to time. The next thing I know, he, he was standing in front of me and I was at his feet, right? But the look he gave me, I can never forget. I can never forget. Because there was such power that I felt that I did not have a body. Dr. Paldal, I think just you reliving that experience is also allowing us as the viewers to feel a little bit of what you felt. That is most extraordinary. And Dr. Paldal, that journey to Sai, and then being a scientist against that background, because the basis of science is what can be proven is that what exists. So when we begin to go beyond what can be proven, it gets us into the spiritual sphere. But share with us, you've had many wonderful experiences with Bhagwan Baba over the years. Can you share with us two of your most memorable experiences with Mother Sai? Okay, I want to just come back. I'm just, I got very emotional. But that, that experience was probably the best experience I can have, the very first experience. Okay. But I think when you say Mother Sai, I take it that you want me to talk about his nurturing, his uh, protective aspect, right? Rather than any other aspect, his, his protective, his caring, his nurturing aspect. Yes, I think, first of all, I would say that one of the first experience, the most powerful experience is that he is a tremendous psychologist. My wife comes from Pakistan, 
she's Muslim. I am born of a Hindu background. And the amazing thing is that he attracted my wife and her family in Pakistan first. If she had not gone to him first and being transformed, it would have made my life more difficult. You know, to import a guru into a family of the mixed culture would have been a very challenging situation to bring up our children. So I appreciate the, the way in which our family gradually moved to, gradually or not so gradually moved into an acceptance of a spiritual dimension beyond religion. Where we could come together as spiritual partners rather than coming from a, a ethnic religion of Hinduism or, or Islam or Buddhism or whatever. Uh, I think that, that that was a very, very powerful experience. And that only I recognized in retrospect. Now, in terms of um, personal experiences that have been most powerful are his, his divine manifestation where I have seen that he can in Canberra, in Australia, read my thoughts and respond to them in a physical way. Now, I'll give you an example. In Canberra, we had a conference, the first education conference in Canberra, because I was the um, director of the institute here, and we had the first conference in Canberra. The closing address that I was making was very energetic. The, the, there were about 100 participants, and it was very full of very powerful vibrations. And when a photograph was taken of me giving this speech, Swami was standing behind. That photograph itself spoke of his omnipresence. When there was an occasion of uh, Diwali, Deepavali, I had an operation on my back, I had a slip disc. And I was lying in bed and at home, and my wife brought me some juice. And as she put the juice next to my bedside table, um, there was a picture of Baba. And she said, look, oh, you know, this picture, this Amrit has appeared on this picture. And there was a streak of Amrit. And I thought she had put the juice and a drop has flashed. Has splashed onto the picture. As I thought that, another streak of Amrit came out of the picture. This is instant, instantaneously. Another time we were in Perth and we were in somebody's home. There were lots of manifestations of Baba. And he had lots of pictures all around the walls of all sorts of deities. There was one picture I could not recognize. And it was a slim face. And I thought, you know, there was Ishwarama, there was Buddha, there was Guru Nanak, there was all sorts of, all many saints. But I could not recognize that one. So anyway, we, we started some bhajans. And during the bhajans, I kept thinking, you know, who is that? Then I realized it was, it was Tankaparaju, um, Baba's father. And I thought, I've never seen a picture of uh, Vankaparaju on a wall being, being deified. This was my thought, happening in my thought. And by the end of the bhajan, my wife said, oh, look, there is a streak of Amrit coming from that picture. 
then I had to own up that I was thinking, why is he this picture there? I can give you many examples, many, many examples of his responding to my thinking. Right? So I think that gives a an evidence. Now, this is not scientific evidence, but can it be more scientific than that? Where it manifests in, in physical form to a thought? You know, when we say scientific thinking, we, we say we can measure it, right? It has to be tangible. It has to be uh, within the sense organs. Well, this is within the sense organs. This is a response to a thought, which is there in the form of, of a manifestation that your thought has been read, and I'm responding to your thought. That to me is very powerfully scientific evidence. Now, protection of the family, we have had incidences where uh, directly he has saved our children from disasters, from accidents, where a car has rolled and smashed to pieces and our son has been safe twice. Uh, another occasion, our daughter had gone skiing and you know, at an interview he had given her a medallion and he had said, think of me when you need me. Now, I, I can't give you the full story. I had a dream, she had a dream. She was having difficulty skiing. This was the first experience, experience. She lost her skis. She was going to hit a tree and somebody pushed her out. You know, somebody out of the blue came and, and pushed her so that she did not hit the tree. Now, she had been saying, Baba, save me, save me, save me, right? Many, many such instances of his protection, direct protection to the family. And then he also uh, gave us direct guidance on how to bring up our children. Direct guidance that our daughter should go out to work, our son should work with us. We were having a lot of difficulty with our son and he said, he has to work with you. And we were not, and our daughter was like a princess. She did not want to go out to work. He said, send her out to work. You know, things like that. He gave direct guidance to us on how to look after the family. And then he involved us in the parenting program. So we, we were really steeped in a culture of what parenthood means. So in that sense, I think his mother's side has been a huge impact in our family, not just in my life, my wife's life, but in the life of our children and of many, many people that we have been working with as facilitators for the parenting program. Dr. Pardar, that was so touching and inspiring and soulful. It brings tears to one's eyes listening to the overwhelming love and compassion of Mother Sai showered upon you and your family. And as Swami said, take one step towards me, I shall take ten towards you. Shed one tear in my name and I will wipe a hundred from your eyes. And I have the love of a thousand mothers. It is so beautifully demonstrated and enacted in such wonderful experiences of that overwhelming love and care of Mother Sai and you and your family. So, Dr. Paldal, nothing happens by accident. Swami says, not even a blade of grass moves and I have not willed it so. 
And during the course of your interview, you just mentioned that you are married to a Muslim. And I am also a Muslim, Brother Faiz Muhammad, and I am married to a Hindu. So it's a little bit opposite to on your side. And uh, one of the challenges that I had was reconciling the formless aspect of Allah, which is the fundamental belief in Islam. La ilaha illallah Muhammadur Rasulullah. There is no God but Allah and the Holy Prophet Muhammad upon whom be peace is his messenger. So I am very intrigued and I know our viewers will be intrigued that somebody of a Muslim background and then you mentioned an, a family in Pakistan was drawn to Sri Satya Sai Baba even before you with somebody with a, a background and a belief system that is more in consonance with the avatar. How, we, how is that possible? How Could you share a little bit about the experience of your wife being from a Muslim background and that God is formless? How was she able to see such a Sai Baba as an embodiment of divinity? Yes, I, I think that both my wife and her brother and her sister-in-law, they all went to Prashanti before I did. And the way in which Swami organized, you know, at the time in 1987, it was not possible to get a visa to go to India from Pakistan. There had been a war between the two countries. And the, my brother-in-law was so motivated, he went to Islamabad from Karachi to get a visa, Indian visa. The Indian council there gave him a false address as a relative in India to enable him to travel to India. I think, again, I look at this as, and, and, and my wife did not know her brother was going to India. In those days, in 87, there were no phone, phones and in, 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 in homes or even public phone. So she did not know that her brother was coming there. And yet they met on the very arrival of, of his arrival as he, was as he was registering into the accommodation office. My wife happened, science that happened to pass there and see her brother. Ah. Okay, your question is how my wife as a Muslim can look at the possibility on avatar. She is a Shia Muslim. I think it is harder for the Sunni Muslims to grab that. But a Shia Muslim allows the possibility of saints, of sages, of holy people. And I think it is possibly a little bit easier for her to relate with that. After uh, Prophet Ali, um, Hazrat Ali was not a prophet in the, in the sense but he is regarded as a, uh, as a divine figure. I think it speaks to their largeness of mind and heart rather than anything that I can say. You know, their openness to receive wisdom from whatever source. I think that that is, that is the crux of it. But also, relating with the divinity at a formless level, which I have uh, given to you in my experience of how 
he can respond to your thoughts. How he can respond to my feelings. That, I think, is, is evidence, if you like, of the omnipresence of divinity, connecting with your heart and your soul. Um, how I regard Sai Baba is that really he's a notion of love and light. He is the wonder of wonders. He is the, I mean, I am held in deep awe when I think of him. I don't look at his form as form. I look at what he is in his, in his essence, in his heart. The heart of God is everywhere. It's la ilaha illallah. The heart of God is universal. It's, it's beyond universe too. It's, it's, he's the creator. Even before the universe came into existence, he was. And he is, and he will continue to be. Even after pralaya, after the universe disappears. Now, I think that that divine, divine, uh, divine dimension, which contains everything, which is the container in which we live, he's the container, like Bhagavad Gita says. Right? And he's the strength of the strong. He's the beauty of the beautiful. He's the fragrance of the flower. He's, he's everywhere. So to me, Laila illallah means exactly that. And, and I think our experience is, is that. But because he's also in a resident, he can then act as a guide, as a guru, as a source of inspiration, source of security, source of protection. He can bless everything at any time. You recall he's there. As Swami says, wherever my bhajan is sung, I am there. He's already there. I think singing bhajan only acknowledges his presence. He's already there. We can never ever get away from divinity. It's not possible. So I, I don't know whether I've answered your question. Yes, yes, I think yes, that, yes certainly have. Uh, the, the question is how they are able to relate. Let's say my brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my wife, how they are able to relate uh, in this way. And Dr. Paldal, it is so interesting, eh, this, this interview and how Swami's orchestrated it, because I had no knowledge that uh, your wife was Muslim. And it, it leads me to, to share a little bit about that particular saying, that uh, declaration of faith in Islam, la ilaha illallah, the orthodox translation of it is that there is no God but Allah. But the Sufi, the mystical men of Islam, interprets the same verse, not that there is no God but Allah, but that there is nothing but Allah. Yes, I, I think that that is the way I interpret, that's the way my wife interprets this. I think the other thing is we make gods. We make material gods. I mean, if I love my money, if I love my power, if my, I love my position in society, if I love my controlling other people, if I love my addictive behavior, then that becomes the God because that is driving us. When I say there is no God but God, then there are two dimensions. One is that there is no other God that I can love but that God which is universal. And that, that is beyond my senses. It's above, it's above my thinking. It's above my feelings. Because the, he's the giver of the feelings and the giver. 
So when I love, he enables me to love him or whatever you call it or him or her. He enables that. So I, I think that that is beautiful. What you have said is beautiful. There is no God but God, meaning that everything is divine. Everything is saturated with divinity. Only we have to connect. Dr. Pardal, you've put it so beautifully and simply. I also remember Swami saying, it's good to be born in the church, but don't die in it. Yes, and, and I think that when we are talking about my wife as a Muslim or me as a Hindu, I, I will say that my wife has a Muslim background. I have a Hindu background. But all these religions are manifestations of spirituality contextualized to the needs of the society at the time. See, religion is man-made. Spirituality is not. Religion contains the essence of spirituality contextualized to the political, social dimension of that time when, say, Islam was born with Prophet Muhammad or when Christianity was born with, with Jesus Christ or when Buddha uh, took up his Buddhahood contextualized to the needs of the society at the time. But the spiritual core is what they were relating, interpreting it in the language of the people who were there. So when I say my wife has a Muslim background, or she says she has a Muslim background, the background is important because the launch into spirituality requires some kind of an orientation. But I think we have to go beyond that orientation into spiritual realities rather than be confined by the rituals of the religion itself. That's only a stepping stone. But the destination is spirituality. So beautifully put, uh, Dr. Pardal. And it also reminds me of what Swami said, religion seeks to know God, spirituality seeks to experience divinity. So as he himself has said, we have to move from the ritual into the spiritual where we can live in God, for God, with God, because in reality, we are truly divine. And it leads me to the next question, uh, Dr. Paldau. Uh, against the background of a medical doctor and a scientist, when Swami says, I am God, but you are God also, the only difference is I know that I am God, whereas you do not. How do you process that statement? How does it relate to you when he addresses you as embodiments of love, when um, embodiments of the Atma? I, I think that that is something that I am working on. It's, <laughs> it's, I can appreciate intellectually, I can appreciate it emotionally, but I think to actually experience I am God is difficult. I can experience I am a spark of the divine sitting within a magnificent, glorious divinity and that my spirit is part of that, I can relate with that. But that I am God, that I am the totality, that I can create uh, and I can destroy the universe is not my experience. I can only appreciate that that could happen uh, when one is totally God-realized. I think I am um, I'm taking baby steps towards that. Uh, I'm not there. So, but I see the authenticity of that, the perfection of that. It requires a stature 
a spiritual stature which is greater than mine, to actually realize what Swami says in its true essence. To feel that I am God uh, is, is difficult, but I can be godly is yes. But I am God, I think that that to me is a little bit um, out of my reach right now. So it leads me to another question. Swami also says there is nothing like attaining God-realization. You are already that. The Holy Quran talks about the 70,000 veils. And those veils are the maya, the attachment, the so many things that prevent the manifestation of the true self. But if we believe that such a Sai Baba is God in human form, that he is the avatar who has come to incarnate the indwelling God in each and every one of us, and he addresses us as divine, then it is a journey that we must all also take. And that journey is really within to find that, that divinity. But I can understand and appreciate uh, Dr. Paldal because I've had similar conflicts that how can I, you are saying that I am the omnipresent, omniscient, omnipotent consciousness. Swami is telling us that you are that. You are not different. Atma is not different from Paramatma. It's just that when the Atma becomes encased in the physical, then it becomes limited by the ego. But when we are able to break through that ego, we experience what we have already and always been. Divinity. Yes. Yeah, I appreciate that. <laughs> I truly appreciate that at an intellectual level. But I think <laughs> at, a, at an operational level, at an emotional level too, I can experience, but not at an operational level. Um, operational level where I feel that I am the totality. No, uh, that is something I'm working on, but. So Dr. Paldal, as Swami says, we are all works in progress. Absolutely. We are works in progress, striving to manifest that divinity, which, which leads me to another question, Dr. Paldal. What do you believe? What is your opinion as to why did Sri Satya Sai Baba take a human form and come on the face of the earth? What is his fundamental purpose, according to your belief? I think the state of the planet, the state of humanity, the state of the mind of uh, our leaders is something that has caused a crisis to happen in this 21st century, late 20th, 20th century, 21st century. Because we are at the position of being able to become extinct as human species. There is such powerful weapons. There is so much um, negative, I was going to say garbage, but I'm going to say negative, in our psyche, in our uh, social systems, in our political system, in our economic systems, in our universities, in the leadership, that we 
cannot go on as we are doing at present and not extinguish humanity. There, is a, there are many, many, there are about 17 or 18 major um, catastrophic events coalescing into one. Uh, the, the climate uh, challenge, the disparity between the rich and the poor, the fanaticism of religions, um, the, the inequality of the distribution of wealth, the exploitation of the third world uh, by the rich. I mean, there are so many crises that we are at crossroads. Either we will be forced by the events to transform after we lose a major part of our human uh, civilization, human, uh, human habitation, or we can do it proactively. Now, what Swami has come to do is to give us the capacity of transforming our consciousness so that we can voluntarily work towards creating a better world. I think that that is the challenge that he has come to solve, not to solve the problems for us, but to give us the capacity to solve our own problem by raising our level of consciousness, by becoming informed on how, as human beings, we have the capacity to form societies along the line of what he has shown as a society in Prashanti Nilaya, how we can um, how we can organize our universities to take secular education, combine it with wisdom to produce a new way of uh, teaching and training. Uh, to, um, he has given models of how a society should function, how we should look after the destitute and the poor, how we should heal ourselves and heal the society through medical system that he has created there. He has created models of healing, model of a society uh, working together, model of a society anchored in divinity, uh, an educational system that is anchored in divinity and values, um, how to treat our, our destitute and poor. He has given models of all that. So he has come to give humanity a blueprint for future. That's my view. I, I, I think he has come to give us the wisdom to guide us to a, a planet which can live for many centuries. If you take a look at the current development of technology with spirituality, we can have centuries of peace and, and, and flourishing. Or we can deplete the planet completely and make it a mess if we continue the way we are doing. But I think if we follow what he has said, and we are able to influence the leadership in the world along the lines of what he has come to teach, then I think we can have a glorious future. Otherwise, it is a very dark future. Very, very uh, interesting observation and sharing, Dr. Paldal. But going back to the words of Sri Satya Sai Baba, he says, I have come to avert the calamities that will befall mankind. I have come to light the lamp of love in your hearts and to see that it burns with added luster every single day. I have come to incarnate the indwelling God in each and every one of you. I have come to create a society, as you alluded to, 
in which human values drive and motivate thought, word, and deed. And then he's also said there's no force on earth which can delay for an instant the mission for which this avatar has come. And you will all have your parts to play in the unfolding drama of the golden age that is coming. But he's also taking a triple incarnation, Shirdi Sai, Satya Sai, and Prema Sai. And he says in the Shirdi Sai incarnation, he said Shirdi Sai prepared the food, Satya Sai has served the food, and in Prema Sai, we will be enjoying the food. In the Prema Sai incarnation, he talks about the entire world being in a state of unity and love and harmony. But a very important point you made is that we now have a choice. The avatar has come in a physical form as the perfect example of how we should live our lives. He has given us guidance in every aspect of our lives. But the choice is now ours to make. And depending on that choice, there are consequences. So it leads me to the other question. And sometimes, Dr. Paldal, even before I ask the question, you are already given the answers. So the next question deals with you talk about we consciously embracing a spiritual life, a value-based life. And if each one of us takes responsibility for that, we can create a better society, a transformed society, one individual at a time. So how can practicing human values, which is the core of Swami's teachings, which is the essence of religion, how can that be possible in today's society? What has Sai Baba said about using human values to make the world a better place, a more loving place, a more value-based place? Okay. I think if I can just uh, sum up, in my view, his mission. His mission is to create a civilization which is not grounded in power and politics and economics. A civilization that is grounded in human values. That will be a universal civilization in all countries. So we, we have to look at the manifestation of divinity in everything, in the environment, in the way we use our resources, in the way we deal with each other, in the way we conduct our business, or in the way we conduct our leadership at a society level. Right? So it's creating a new civilization. How can we create a new civilization? When you go to people and say, I have come to transform you to create a new civilization, they will balk. They will not believe you. They will, they will, there is an in, inbuilt resi resistance in people to move from where they are to a new reality. That's a fact. Because people are comfortable in where they are, even though we are burning ourselves, but people are comfortable. Now, question is, how do we move societies? We can move societies in a number of ways. Our personal practice is important because that shows that we are speaking from a ground of authenticity, of, of, you know, of practice, not merely saying words, but actually practice. And what we are saying is not thinking, but belief, a real belief, a living belief in a divinity. Now, question is, how do we influence other people? 
we can't go and declare, you know, we have come to change it. Because people say we don't need change. What we can do is to um, work with groups that are prepared to uh, undergo that change. For example, we have uh, worked with the public school system. We have worked with the universities. We have worked with the municipality. We have worked with the police force. We have worked with uh, 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 adolescents who are, uh, you know, on drugs and, and things like that. We have worked with uh, parents. Now, parents and teachers are too important because everybody has a parent, everybody has a teacher, right? If we can influence these two institutions and work with the institutions that are established, like the universities or the school system or the police force or the politicians, then we have the capacity to be able to transform societies. But it has to come on an issue-based um, workshop. Small number of people who can actually have the insights during your workshop and are prepared to transform themselves and then transform the system that they're working in. If we can work with the teachers, teachers transformation. Work with the parents, parent transformation. And if we can transform these two groups as the key, key components, then we can create a culture over a period of time which will be changing the world. This is what I see as Swami's modus operandi in the long run. So, Dr. Paldal, that's a very, very um, interesting statement and observation. I remember in 1986, in the first EHV conference in Prashanti Nilayam, Swami also said the best way to teach EHV is to live it. So, as you are saying, the difference with being a SSE or value-based teacher, whether it's in the direct method or integrating human values with the subject, one has first got to be the example of what it is you're sharing. And that's the basic difference, as you are alluding to, from what you might call a normal academic teacher teaching mathematics or biology or science. They teach a particular content and syllabus and they go home. But human values, it is a 24-7 life experience where the teacher and the parent must be role models and examples in order to effect similar change and transformation in those that we are under our care and guidance. So how important is that where human values are concerned? Oh, it's vital. It's vital. You see, human values are the currency of our culture. All culture is based on human values. But not the practice of human values. The human interactions are based on human values, but not on the practice of human values. So what we have to do is to create authenticity in the practice of human values. People transform when they, are, they understand the depth dimension of human values. We don't have to bring divinity into this because human values are themselves manifestations of divine. Peace is divine, love is divine, truth is divine, nonviolence is divine, right? 
So I think if we can influence or give insights, you can't influence people unless you can give them an insight in our workshops so that they can make an action plan to work on themselves. And this is a process, this is not an event. This is a process so that everyone goes on a journey, on a process of self-discovery, on a process of relating with values and implementing values in their life, in their interactions and subordinating their mind to their spirit. Then we find that individual transformation can result in group transformation, which can result in, in a social transformation, can result in a national transformation, but it is a process. So I, I hope that in the years to come, we will have expanded our horizons in terms of our engagement with the society in different aspects of the society, different institutions of the society, so that we can um, manifest what Swami's mission has been, uh, what Swami's mission, genuine mission of Swami is about that. It is not to establish a new religion, it is to transform the consciousness of humanity. Dr. Paldal, you've been very, very much involved, as you have stated, in character development of children. You're very much involved in teacher and parent training and that whole aspect that Swami speaks about through education. Going back to the definition of what Swami has said about educate, which is bringing out that which is already latent within the individual, the purpose then of the teacher, the guru, or the parent is to provide one, the example, as you have said, but also using those five teaching methods to be a facilitator to extract the human values and allow it to manifest. Can you talk a little bit more of that process? I, I think that there is a methodology in education. Uh, as you have said, human values are part of our human nature. Now, this is becoming more and more scientifically grounded in particularly in human psychology, in the psychology, positive psychology work, and also in transpersonal psychology and evolutionary biology. So one final question, you have been very much involved in medicine, you're a scientist, you are a medical doctor. How have you been able to integrate the practicing of human values in your medical practice as a doctor, as a surgeon, and as a scientist? I must admit that as a, as a doctor trained in England in the National Service, I did not link the earning of money with, uh, you know, in private practice. I did not believe in private practice, even though I had a private practice, I tended to uh, use it for uh, research. That money from private practice used to go to do uh, fund a lab in the hospital to do research, and uh, research into vascular diseases. So I had people doing their PhDs and their master's thesis working with me in that lab uh, with the Australian National University in, in Canberra, in Australia. So my relationship with the, with the uh, patients has always been heart to heart. But bringing 
Swami's teaching into that softened my technical approach. My technical approach of being a technician doing an operation as opposed to a human interacting with another human to alleviate suffering, which are two different things. When we are technical, I must say that in my operations and so on, I try to be perfectionist in, in conducting the surgical procedure. But looking at a patient essentially as a machine, you know, to be fixed, yes, with a lot of empathy, with a lot of understanding, but still as a machine to be fixed. Whereas Swami's teachings brought another human dimension into my interaction with the patients. And that was to look at the patient sitting in the family, uh, family being involved in the patient, uh, me working as a facilitator of healing rather than of, um, of fixing a problem. You know, working at multiple levels. So, um, does that answer your question? Certainly, uh, Dr. Palda, that was so beautiful um, in the way that it allowed you to perform the surgery or deal with your patients at a totally different level. And it leads me to another aspect of what we're discussing. Swami once says, doctors charge patients too much money. That money decides who should be operated upon and when they should be operated and people who cannot afford, then what happens to them? And then the other part of the question, sir, is Swami has also talk, spoken about what is really true medicine and the practicing of it. He's also recommended to doctors at a medical conference where he gave a discourse that we doctors should be providing ways and means that are preventative rather than curative. Can you share a little bit on these aspects? Yes, I, I think there are several questions there. I, I'll take one at a time. As I said, I shifted from being a doctor to serving the, the patient, right? And that the privilege of being able to serve another human being to alleviate their suffering was a blessing from the divine, right? That, that is the essential change in attitude. As I said, I never was interested in making money out of my practice. but. I had a business to give me plenty of money. Swami has been very kind to me in every way, but I think I did not, uh, I was not, not very money oriented to start with. Um, and I think that, that that was a blessing. Now, the second question that you've raised is, is a doctor a healer or is a doctor a technician? Now, generally speaking, what I see in the medical profession, doctor is a technician who charges money for his time and for his expertise. To me, that is so um, such a poor way of looking at this deep relationship between two human beings, where you can be a healer, not just healer of a disease, not cancer that I cut out, but of a human being, deal with the emotions, deal with the spiritual side of life, deal with the family, deal with the totality of their situation. 
That is healing. True healing, you know, you could have, uh, a patient could have, I could have cancer where I'm dying and yet I'm healed because I'm peace, I'm at peace. And I've finished my mission in life and that I have another life after this. And I'm at peace in my soul, right? Yeah, I'm shedding this body, but I'm at peace. That is genuine healing. That is not currently within the purview of medicine, other than palliative medicine, where they give a lot of drugs and, and make people, uh, you know, sleepy. And that is not healing. Alleviating, alleviating pain alone is not healing, unless it is combined with spirituality, empathy, love, devotion, care, healing in a wider context. Moving on to the whole area of wellness as opposed to curing medicine. Curative medicine and wellness are two apoles apart. Wellness says health is within us. It is in our lifestyle, exercise, diet, uh, how we sleep, how we manage our emotions, how we manage our spirituality. That's he, the wellness is a continuum between death and wellness of life where it is lived to the ultimate. I am well when I am meditating and I relate with this love and light all around me and I feel that I'm part of it. That is the wellness. When I forget that, then I, then I am lost. Then I'm just in, in the world as a biological specimen. Now, I think in terms of wellness, our daughter is a specialist in wellness, by the way. She's a practitioner of wellness, right? And she's got master's degree in this and, and she does the she does practice. And she has influenced my life in a very our life, my wife's and my life in a very major way. To give us this, that within us are possibilities of healing. And I have been very sick from time to time with different ailments. And she has come up with diet, with change plans, with you know uh, information about supplements and so on, where it has been a different way, even though I went through surgery, but it was not surgery that, that held me down, but it was surgery only as a part of a total illness, total wellness um, procedure. So wellness by itself is preventative. We cultivate positive health as opposed to just dealing with disease. Currently, the medical profession and particularly the pharmaceutical industry are concerned with making money and treating disease. Whereas Swami says, and I really do uh, resonate with it in my core, disease is dis-ease. It is not living at comfort with yourself. And it is living in a way where you don't love yourself. If I eat junk food, it means I don't love myself. If I inebriate myself, it means I don't love myself. So if I take drugs, it means if I am addicted to anything like caffeine or anything, then I don't love myself enough. I'm not on a wellness continuum. So wellness is very important and health is within us. It is not in the pill and it is not, not in the knife of a surgeon. Health is in how we live a positive life, a proper diet, a regulated life, proper sleep, 
exercise, relaxation, meditation, and devotion. That is a proper way of wellness. So every, every aspect of our life, the physical, the mental, the social, the emotional, and the spiritual are all, all taken care of. That is proper wellness. Dr. Paldal, it has been an absolute pleasure, a joy, a privilege to have done this interview with you. I know that our viewers will be inspired and moved by what you have shared to relate to the inner divinity that we truly are. So on behalf of the Sri Satyasai Global Council, we want to express gratitude and appreciation to you for taking the time to share your personal journey to Swami. May Bhagwan Baba continue to bless and guide you. May you continue to be a loving instrument in his divine mission. Jai Thank you, Thank you very much. I think you have been very kind with your words. Uh, I appreciate this opportunity and thank you very much for giving me this opportunity. I thank Swami, I thank you, and I thank Global, Global Council for this opportunity. Thank you very much. Sairam.